Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 23rd, 2017, and this is episode 2009 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a great one for you today. And here's what we're going to talk about. Something we talked about years ago, almost three years ago, first time we talked about this, virtual nations. I'm calling this a new look at virtual nations. And I think the time to really kind of ramp up the idea brainstorming thing around the concepts of virtual nations has gotten better since we first talked about it. What actually kind of keyed me in on this is I was listening to uh, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Networks uh, podcast uh, recently. They actually have a series of podcasts. This one's called State Change. State Change number 41, Unpacking Digital Identity. And when I heard the, the concept of how challenging digital identity really could be and the multi-layered approach, it was more complex than I originally thought, but the guy that was making the case for how complex it is, I think was missing some pretty simplistic solutions and how if you actually don't just take this identity thing as a thing by itself, but make it kind of the flagship product of a virtual nation, this, the problem is the solution, like from permaculture. And I think that's because... I'm not a coder. I can't do the things that we're talking about today. And I think that people that can seldom can see the bigger picture of what should be done. They can, they can tell you how to do things, and they're very good at tearing things apart and breaking them down and saying, here are the flaws. But they're not so good at solving the macro flaws. They're good at solving the micro flaws. You said you wanted this to do this. This line of code is not working, so here's how we adjust it to make it do what you wanted. Right? Or here's why that's not actually a solution. This is, it doesn't actually fix anything yet because there's this bigger problem. But the person with the idea can go back and say, okay, well then here's how we do that. And I think I'm, I, that's, that's the kind of guy I am in this. I'm not the guy that can lay down the code. And I think that's part, the, the, the gentleman who was making this case was very technical and, and very astutely technical, technical. But I don't think could see that, hey, wait a minute, this is, this is the solution to a lot of our problems. We'll be talking about all that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, what do you call a gun without ammo? Well, I call it an overpriced club or perhaps a way to get a loan at a pawn shop. So I keep a good supply of ammo around, and I always shop BulkAmmo.com when I need more. With shipping that's so fast you'll wonder how they do it, all the common calibers and a discount for MSV members on top of it, Check out BulkAmmo.com today and give them a shot at your business. Recently, a new magazine showed up at my house. I had never seen it before. I had never heard it before. It was Self-Reliance Magazine. And I took a look at it and realized it was from the same people, Dave Duffy and his crew, that have been producing Backwoods Home. They sent me an introductory copy because I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home for 20 years. I opened the pages and I was blown away. Pretty much you take what Backwoods Home has done for two decades or more up the production value, and take 100% focus on self-sufficiency and self-reliance topics. Homesteading, canning, cooking, you name it. That type of thing, all of the politics stripped out, hardcore how-to. That's the new Self-Reliance magazine. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. 
Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have three today, two from Alex Shrugged, one from Southpaw Ben. I have the 912 Project and the Tea Party Movement. I have H1N1 Pandemic from Southpaw Ben. And I have the Fort Hood Workplace Violence, i.e. Massacre, contributed by Alex, Slug, Alex Shrugged. Slug, that's not nice to call him that. Alex Shrugged. Anyway, in this year, notable deaths, Michael Jackson, age 50, death by physician. His doctor was convicted of involuntary manslaughter for administering a drug normally used for surgery but not closely monitoring Jackson. Um, Ted Kennedy, age 77, died of brain cancer. Uh, Jack Kemp, age 73, died of cancer. Quarterback for the Buffalo Bills and congressman leading, uh, to the leading the charge for Reagan tax cuts. Uh, Ricardo Monteblon, age 88, congestive heart failure. He was uh, Khan in Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, and Fantasy Island. He was, uh, uh, I remember his name now, but he was the, the guy that ran Fantasy Island. Gidget, the Taco Bell Chihuahua, dies this year, age 15. She was euthanized after a stroke. Yo quiero Taco Bell. I want Taco Bell. This year in film, Avatar, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Star Trek, the reboot of the Star Trek original series, and Twilight, New Moon, Monsters vs. Aliens, and The Blind Side. This year in TV, President Obama delays the implementation of digital television. Apparently no one realized that analog TV was going away for real. Glenn Beck moves to Fox News. Glee, high school students sing their way through life. Alex says he liked it initially. No, me not so much. My my high school musical, the only one I ever liked at all, I was a kid, and it was called Grease. That's it. And I've never liked another high school musical ever again. Uh, the Colony, an unreal survival reality show after a collapse of civilization. First season had some good ideas, but overall it was too zombie biker apocalypse for me. I remember covering that on the show, and I, I have to agree with Alex. This year in music, I Told You So by Carrie Underwood. Lady Gaga shoots to the top with Just Dance and Poker Face. And My Life Would Suck Without You by Claire, Kelly Clarkson. And Michael Jackson outsells everyone else as he passes away from beyond the grave. <clears throat> This year in video games, Angry Birds for iOS, Uncharted 2 Among Thieves, and Stalin vs. Martians. And Stalin vs. Martians, Alex says, like a slow-motion car crash. You know it's going to be bad, but you just can't look away. In other news, H1N1, swine flu has become a global pandemic. Jack Spierko said, don't worry about it, and ended up being right. Uh, Microsoft releases Windows 7, fixes most of the problems with Vista. Best Windows operating system so far. Windows 10, you can forget about it. I'll never upgrade, I'll never upgrade, I'll never upgrade to Windows 10. It's crap. SNL comedian Al Franken becomes a U.S. Senator. After months of fixing the votes, I mean recounting the votes, the Democrats now have a veto-proof majority. Here comes Obamacare. President Obama wins the Nobel Peace Prize. Why, I have no idea, but I lost respect for the Nobel Peace Prize when they gave it to the terrorist Yasser Arafat, says Alex Shrugged. Yeah, if there was any credibility left to it after that, they ruined it with Obama. I have no interest in who wins anything from Nobel at this point. And a young boy is missing and presumed trapped in a runaway experimental balloon. The balloon is real, but it's a hoax. The boy is hiding in the garage. Parents have been pitching TV show to the Learning Channel. Huh. I don't remember that at all. I just don't remember that one. I'm going to read the 912 Project and the Tea Party Movement because it really fits today's show quite a bit. As Glenn Beck makes his move to Fox News, he starts a series called We Surround Them. He is a deeply emotional and inspiring man. He reminds his audience that the people have the final say on what government does because ultimately the power of the government is derived from the individual. The media and the government don't surround us. We surround them. He sets forth nine principles and asks his audience to email their picture to Fox News if they believe in those same principles. The servers at Fox News collapse five times. 
As the anniversary of 9-11 approaches, Glenn recalls how it felt the day after on 9-12. We weren't fighting each other. We were helping each other. So with that idea in mind, he starts the 9-12 project based on nine principles and 12 values. He calls on volunteers to start their own local chapter. He wants these groups to educate their fellows on their civic duties, the Constitution and U.S. history. He wants people of different backgrounds to get together, and that is what happens. Then something else happens. The Tea Party emerges as a separate movement and turns political. This is not what Glenn is aiming for, but the people want it. They march on Washington to protest the politicians taking money and power, to protest the multi-billion dollar bailouts of companies too big to fail, and proposed health care plan that will take over 7% of the U.S. economy. It's an amazing outpouring of time and energy. We the people have risen up and have spoken loud and clear. Here's my take by Alex Shrugged. And in the end, the Tea Party failed. I still keep in touch with some of the local 912 project members. I count that toward the good. I learned a lot, and I hope I taught them something. I also learned that politicians do not care what the people think. They're not listening no matter how hard, loud we shout. President Trump is yet another effort by the people to change the direction of this country. I'm willing to give the man a chance, but I don't hold out much hope. If everything changes for the better, great. If not, well... We're going to have to take care of ourselves, which is why I started listening to the Survival Podcast. We'll have to teach ourselves to educate our fellows. This is what I'm trying to do this very minute. Why? Because I still believe in the original goals of the 912 Project chapter, to educate our fellows. I can do that for history. You can handle other subjects. And together, we will get through whatever the worthless politicians in Washington, D.C. throw at us next. We are the people. Yeah. Um, I'd like to point out that about... The middle of 2009, I went to absolutely one of the very first Tea Party um, meetups in the country. It was in uh, a park in uh, the Fort Worth area of Texas, actually Arlington. I can't remember the name of the park. That was a huge park uh, up by I-30. Um, I can't believe I can't think of it. It doesn't matter. And I went there, and at the point that this was starting up, The Tea Party was supposed to be about the following. Reducing taxes and government waste. That was it. It was, it was in the, the, the vein of the original Tea Party, the Boston Tea Party. We're, we are overtaxed, and the government spends too much money. So I went just to see what was going on, especially being I'd moved into the space of doing this podcast, and I was talking a lot about the, the problems in our country, specifically economic and, and political. And I proceeded to have myself lectured about the sin of sodomy by a pastor who stood on stage and did that, and how no nation that ever accepted it had ever survived. And I was thinking, I wonder if he knows that no nation that's ever based its, its, uh, its policies, economic policies on, on annual agriculture has ever survived. In fact, no nation in the history of the world has ever survived without being basically torn apart over and over again. And I don't really know that he can make this claim anyway. But my bigger problem there wasn't, you know, a gay rights issue. It's just like, what the hell does? Let's say I agreed 100 with the guy. I still would have a problem because what the hell does this have to do with the government spending too much money and stealing our money through taxation? And the, I guess you call it keynote speaker of the thing, Rick Perry, who was running for re-election as our governor. And I listened to him give a speech that the crowd really liked. I wasn't impressed by it because I had heard it earlier that day on the radio where he had given it at another place he had stopped. It was the exact same memorized speech. It had nothing to do with the Tea Party. The Tea Party was just an opportunity. The next day I came on air, and this is what I said. If you're part of this Tea Party movement, I have a message for you. 
find some Democrats. I don't mean Democrat elected officials. I mean some Democrats. And take some Democrats to your meetups. If you don't do that, this thing will be co-opted by the GOP before the end of the year. It will be rendered into nothingness, to uselessness. It will just be a piece of the Republican Party. It will not be anything that actually reforms America or government. I hear from people a lot that send me emails with things going on in media, the news, etc. And they say in the subject line, do you ever get tired of being right? Yeah, all the time. 2009 was no exception. That's exactly what happened. On the 912 Project, I don't really spend a lot of time listening to Glenn Beck, but I've met Glenn Beck face-to-face. I've shook his hand. I've looked him in the eye. I don't believe that Glenn Beck and I see eye-to-eye on everything, but I've seen him move more and more from conservative to true libertarian, though he still has a long way to go to get there, and I don't know if he can uh, over the years. And I believe his heart's in the right place. And I believe his idea of let's not even make this political. Let's make this about ourselves, and let's not tell people who to vote for or how to vote. Let's educate people on fact and then let them be more informed in all of their duties within their nation. It's a good idea. But I think it's doomed to failure. I think it's doomed to failure if you really want to measure it by actually getting things done. Because our system is designed to make sure that things get done the way the people in power want them done. The central banks, the government, the state versus the nation, which we'll be talking about a lot today. And it's why I think that what we need is a place where people can do this with some level of insulation around them, and specifically their commerce. The, the number one way that we are controlled is through our commerce, through our money, through economics. And that's why I think virtual nations is a really good thing to look at today, and that's why we're going to do that. So on that note, let's get into this, and let's talk a little about virtual nations. And I, I want to talk to you about nations versus states, and I want to try to take two episodes that I did and put them in a, a five-minute nutshell for you so that you're up to speed if you didn't hear them you know, three years ago when I did them. Uh, but those, those episodes are episode 1428 and 1561. So at 2009, we're almost 100 episodes since the later one. So I, it is pretty far back. But here is, is the basic concepts of, of, nation, of virtual nation. I'll just start out with a nation versus a state. The biggest problem people have with this concept is they keep trying to apply statist philosophy, statist religion, statist faith to a nation. The state and a nation are different things. I, I have said that I am extremely loyal as a patriot to the nation that is America. I have very little loyalty to the state that is America. And people have a very hard time differentiating those two. Well, a nation is a group of people bonded by common language, culture, ideals, traditions. That's what a nation is. Okay? And nations have various forms. If we look at the nation of Israel, long before there was a state of, a state of Israel, we recognize the nation of Israel. The people themselves, bonded by those things, were in fact a nation, even if they didn't have a homeland, is one example. If we look at ISIS, not, not all nations are good just because they're not states, right? They call themselves the Islamic State. They don't really have a state, but they are a nation bonded by common ideology and, and, and things. 
uh, and, and you know, language and, and faith and, and tradition, even though those things are negative. And I use them as an example because, well, a nation can be bad. I want you to understand that what we're talking about building today could only be good if designed to be good from the ground up. And the, the beauty of coding something is you can code into it fail-safes and things that catch problems. You can't fix everything with coding, but you can build a system that specifically rewards non-aggressive behavior and proactive behavior and in of itself, in its very nature, punishes violent behavior punishes not keeping your word, and eBay's done that. Not so much that they're a nation, but if you think about the way people conduct business on eBay, sellers that do a good job of, of, of selling what they say they're selling, delivering it in good condition, over time develop a seller's reputation, and that seller's reputation allows them to do more business. They become power sellers, etc., eBay has even recently put in a fail-safe that I've, I've learned about. I don't know how recently, but it's, it's, it's newer than, than eBay itself, where if someone's a power seller and they've had enough positive reviews and you want to give them a negative review, they make you wait 10 days to make sure you've actually tried to solve the problem with the seller before you just said, this guy sucks, because another seller might want to damage their reputation. Who knows? So that's an example of a fail-safe that can be put into place, and that the behavior itself is rewarded for being positive. All eBay wants you to do is follow their terms and conditions and do what you say and say what you do. If you say the condition of this item is used in good condition, then that's what it should be. If you say it's brand new in box, that's what it should be. If you say you're shipping live plants, when they arrive, they shouldn't be dead. And they rely on the community itself to police that action. So that, that's, that's one way that a virtual nation can police itself and be, be built from the very beginning to do that. But the key takeaway here is nation versus state. And stop applying statism to everything I'm going to say today. You're going to struggle with every single bit of it. That doesn't mean we can't leverage and use the state to get things off the ground, though. In fact, we kind of need to. So my idea for a virtual nation in a nutshell was that people bought their citizenship, but they bought currency, and they got currency. So if they wanted to leave, they could exchange their currency back into some sort of virtual currency, a cryptocurrency. And, and, and initially, my thought was, well, you back it with Bitcoin. So when you buy your virtual currency, you, 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 you spend Bitcoin, and that way it wasn't for cash. And we keep, take the government's money completely out of the equation. It's not euros, it's not dollars, it's not Canadian dollars, it's not British pounds. You know, it's not Australian dollars, it's big. We, we don't use your money, go away. And that there would be a reserve, like a banking reserve holding Bitcoin. And that if you left, you could exchange whatever currency you had from doing business or you still have left and, and leave. But once you took out more than the initial amount you put in, this prevented takers, then you, you could just denounce your citizenship by leaving and taking your stuff and going with you. And that would give the virtual nation incentive to actually be a place that people wanted to conduct business and, and communicate and do conflict resolution and education and other, everything else. Now, I, I don't want to go much deeper into it, but I do want to give a, a couple pieces, and you can go back and listen to these other episodes if you want to, to get a bigger picture of the concept itself. But what defines a nation? And there's a lot of things that define nations as states. Um, but there's, there's some primary ones. And one is land with borders. And, of course, a virtual nation wouldn't have that. And then there would be hard power, which is military force. 
And a virtual nation could have hard power. If you have a nation made up of highly technologically advanced individuals, okay, if they were attacked, they could reciprocate. But it should only be used for defense because a, a, a tenant of any virtual nation based on liberty and voluntary principles without, in the absence of coercion should be violence and force are only used as defensive measures. But there were other things to define nations. One would be soft power. And soft power can actually be very strong. The United States has tremendous soft power because of who we are. So if we identify a nation, another state actor, as being bad, we can make life miserable for them without a UN resolution. We can severely impact their ability to do commerce with the rest of the world just by saying to our best friends, you know, we don't want to do anything formal here, but we would really appreciate it if you didn't support this regime uh, by, you know, selling stuff. And then we can move a little further close to hard power by doing something like a UN resolution or something like that. And that's one type of soft power. But the other type of soft power is, is instead of the stick, it's the carrot, right? Instead of the stick they beat you with, it's the carrot they lead you with. So America can say to another nation, you know, we might consider opening up certain trade with your nation because we have that capability to do so. Or we might let you locate something in our country or we might invest in your port or whatever it is. And I'm, I'm, the financial is part of this, but, but soft power is a little different than straight financial because it's the entity itself acting. It's their goodwill. It's their social capital that allows them to make the promise that can be fulfilled in the first place. Now, a virtual nation can have a lot of soft power, but the next thing that defines a nation is economic power. And if you get enough people in one place with money, they have a lot of economic power. You think about this, if you, if you created a virtual nation that had 100 million people that said they were affiliated with it, how much power do you have in dealing with banks, other states, corporations? There's a lot of power there. So I, I don't want to go any deeper than that today because I have a whole new you know, formula to cover today. But I just want you to understand that a nation can exist without borders, or at least without physical borders. It could be virtual borders. You're creating a cloud environment. It's, it's Cloud City for you uh, Star Wars fans. It's the real Cloud City. But it's Cloud Nation. It's a cloud nation. So those borders are virtual borders. And they, they allow protection. They allow certain assurances. They allow affinity. And if played right, they could actually get to a point where other nations real nations that are states, other nation states, would have to recognize some level of the autonomy of something like this. Now, that's way out in the future, but I want to talk about how we get there. Before I do, I want to talk about how the currency model is a lot easier to do today. I always believed that some sort of a, a back derivative was the way to do this, so that you could, you could get rid of the concept of U.S. dollars. So in other words, you can't buy... You can't buy, and I called this nation as a, as a thought experiment, Libertas. And we'll, we'll use that today again because why not? I need a name to make this easy. But I'm not proposing anything here, okay? I, I don't want to be in charge of this. I can't. So I just want to be clear about that. But we, we have Libertas, this virtual nation. And business in Libertas is done with Liberty Coins. And at the time, at least, I felt that Liberty Coins could only be spent and accumulated and, and, and used inside Libertas. 
and that there'd be these, it'd be a derivative again at the time, Bitcoin. And then if you wanted to leave and you wanted to take money with you or spend it outside of Libertas, you would exchange the Liberty coins for Bitcoins and then go do your thing. I think that's convoluted and it's difficult, and there actually would be no reason not to allow the exchange of your currency outside of your nation. It's basic Forex trading. Um, and it actually would benefit your nation for that to happen because it would increase the value of your currency to have other people buying it, and thereby your people holding their reserves in your currency within your nation would have a true deflationary model where their money would get more and more powerful over time. And that's, that's, that's what Bitcoin's doing today, but without the, the, the bubble of the virtual nation around it. Well, now that Ethereum has come out, and you're able to build your own tokens on the Ethereum blockchain, creating that at least one-off of the U.S. dollar. If somebody wants to, to buy and sell and trade your currency outside, they, there's nothing you can do about that. That's like the people buy and trade and sell the yen. But inside you have this cocoon that says... Inside Libertas, we only do business in Liberty Coin. That's one of our defining characteristics. We have our own money. Does that mean two Libertasians can't exchange Bitcoin or whatever? No, but it wouldn't be Libertasian business, if that makes sense. You can do whatever you want because you can have multiple citizenships for all we care. We're not, we're not a monopolistic state. We are a voluntary nation. But for it to be conducted in Libertasian the envelope to make it protected, it would be in Liberty Coin. And that can be done with a, you know, a shapeshift style app anyway. Well, you're holding Bitcoin or you're holding Ethereum or you're holding Dash or whatever it is, but you need to pay on your contract with another Libertasian citizen under the protection of the Libertasian cloud. Well, you just shift it to Liber Liberty Coin and you spend it that way inside the nation. Now, does it have to be that way? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not in charge. But my instinct as an entrepreneur and someone that studied the state and law and legalities thinks it gives you a stronger case that you're truly a nation that, hey, you don't get to tax this transaction because everything happened in a currency that's not yours, in a nation that's not yours, and we don't recognize your sovereignty. We don't recognize your sovereignty inside of our nation. If, the, if our citizen converts their currency back to your fiat, then your rules apply, but as long as it's in here, F off. And you could make it almost impossible for governments to track that shit anyway. So they could say that you have to pay taxes on it. They could say that it's illegal, but you can't figure out who's doing what with whom if you do this right. So is it a tax evasion strategy? Well, aren't certain islands tax evasion strategies for the rich right now? What if we just made it where anybody that could do it, or at least anybody that was willing to put some skin in the game could do it? Okay? So the currency model is actually easier to accomplish now, and Ethereum's you know, blockchain may not be the place to do that, even though you can roll your own tokens there pretty easily, because the token is not the complicated part. We're about to get into some of the complicated parts. All right? But it's just easier today, and there's more coders that know how to do this stuff. And it could be its own thing, but I actually think... The smart way to do a, a virtual nation would be to be as modular as possible. To build the system with modularity in mind so that if somebody develops a really great technology that, that people use in the open world like Shapeshift, where you can just change your currency immediately from one currency to another, one virtual coin to another, well then, just like Jax moved it in their wallet, move that inside your virtual nation. Why not? 
I also think it would be a good idea to have a virtual nation actually be run to profit the people that do the work in the nation, not just the entrepreneurs. So when we get into the first product I think they should have, there, there would be a cost associated with becoming a citizen that would go now, it's, I've changed my mind on this. I said you would buy the currency, but you'd keep it all. I think, no, you'd buy the currency and you'd spend some of it to get certain things done that would be mandatory to become a citizen that would fund two things. One, the labor of the people that would perform the service, and as you'll see, it's a complex service, um, and then the, the remainder would go to a reserve for the nation, a national reserve. And that national reserve would then be held in Liberty Coin, but probably other coin. Because the nation can print its own Liberty Coins. And th that, that's a whole different s subject we won't get into today to discussion on, well, how many and how do they get, are they proof of stake, are they proof of work, all that stuff. Just leave that go for now. But the nation could actually build a reserve of its own currency. And it would have to build a reserve that is probably less than what's in the hands of the citizens, so it can't devalue its own currency by accident. You could build into the code. The, you know, but if it took a certain portion and said, well, you know, for every, uh, every amount of, 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 you know, whatever currency comes in, we're going to take 10% of it and diversify that into one of these three currencies, and then we're going to take another 10% in these three currencies, another 10% in these three currencies, and 70% will hold in our own reserve. Something like that. That would provide a lot of stability and a lot less effect on market fluctuations. So if someone went out and tried to tank the Liberty coin because they didn't like what you were doing, well, if you have a big reserve in Bitcoin, well, that helps counterbalance that and your reserve is more stable. And it makes it actually harder to tank your currency because the market knows you're holding these additional reserves. You see what I mean? So that, that's just some more ways of thinking about this. So what do I think the first product should be of a virtual nation. I, I think it should be an identification. And that's more complex than you think it is. And listening to this show, again, I was listening to a podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, and I came across an episode called State Change Number 41, Unpacking Digital Identity by Christian Lund Lundqvist and Stephen Wilson. The guests brought up a lot of challenges with digital identity, including layers of identity, such as how much identity does a given action require, such as to play an online game, you don't really need to reveal much information if you do, as you say, we're requesting a loan. It's much more important that I know who you really are when you're requesting a loan. Or if you're claiming that you have a, an illness and you want to be a part of a group of people that support people with that illness, and this is beyond drugs and prescriptions and doctors, Just think about this. If you have a certain illness and you're creating an online support group for people with that illness that are told you can confide in these other people because they're all in the same boat as you, and maybe those people don't really want someone who's pretending to have that illness to be in there gathering information about that illness or people with it. So they want to police that. So you'd have to divulge more information with that. And then how do you prevent counterfeiting in an online world where everything's in ones and zeros? And and the guests kept coming back to the state and the bank systems as being necessary at this point. And I think maybe they are, but I don't think they're necessary on an ongoing basis, and that's where this conversation never seemed to lead for me. So what I mean by that is let's look at one of the objections I've heard about Coinbase lately. I don't want to use Coinbase because they ask for my social security number. 
Okay, does your bank ask for your social security number? Well, yes. Oh, okay. Do you have a PayPal account? Yep. Did they ask for your social security number? Yep, they sure did. Okay, do you have a retirement account? Yeah, did, did you have to give them a social security number? Well, yeah. Okay, do you have a brokerage account? Some people say, yeah, did you have to? Well, yeah, okay. All right, so Coinbase is completely above board and is doing business within the bounds of U.S. and international law and is complying with every regulation that's been thrown at them and acting like the PayPal of virtual currency. That's exactly what they're doing. So why would you think that they wouldn't ask that? Oh, well, yeah, you know. And then the next person says, well, but, but they asked for my, you know, they wanted to know the source of my funds. Okay. I want you to think about this. <laughs> Come on, now, just kind of think. Yeah, they asked for the source of your funding before you actually provided it, but if you were going to buy currency in their exchange anyway, wouldn't you eventually have to give them the source of your funds to be able to use it? In other words, if you use a credit card, wouldn't you have to give them the credit card number to be able to actually make the purchase? Or if you're going to use your bank account, wouldn't you have to give them the bank account number so that you could transfer money with a wire in? Wouldn't they have to know where to look for it? So even in the world of virtual currency, when we go mainstream with like Coinbase, Coinbase is relying on, they're not just complying with the government, they're relying on the government. Trust me, Coinbase does not want somebody committing identity theft inside the Coinbase system. They, want, they don't want somebody claiming to be Jack Spierko in their system, bringing a whole shitload of Bitcoin in through some type of scam, then pushing it out, and then disappearing, and Jack Spierko's going, I never had a Coinbase account. They don't want that. So as much as they're complying, they're also relying. Because, say what you want about the state, If you have someone's social security number combined with their driver's license number, combined with something like utility bills, combined like something with medical history, you're like 99.9999% that this individual is who they say they are. Like the identification systems of the state are actually pretty good. If you want to run a credit report on somebody, you have their social security number. It's a national identification number. Okay. So, they were talking about things like, well, you know, how much, how much do you really need to be able to do this? And it's more, they were saying it's more complicated than you think. For instance, let's say that I have dealings with a bank, and that bank knows me, and knows exactly who I am, and I've proven to them who I am, and I've been doing business with them for five years. Now I want to do business with another bank. Well, it would seem reasonable that Bank A could vouch for my identity to Bank B. But there's complexities there, and there's legalities there, and Bank B is probably still going to want my Social Security number and additional identification and proof of who I am. If I'm doing business as a corporation with that bank, they're going to want a certificate of good standing from the state of incorporation. They're going to want other documents from the state. And it doesn't matter that I have an account over here. They're going to want that information replicated. The same thing with medical identification and medical records. You go to a new doctor, you fill out the next new giant damn form. Why don't you get the information from the last place? There's issues of liability. There's issues of transferability. There's issues of error, of misc, uh, risk mitigation, all different types of things. But what if we could do this once, and then the person that had it done controlled how much and who saw what of what? with kind of a public-private key, two-step verification, and determining how much can you see. Layered identity. Like, you could see that I'm Jack Spierko. 
as in the guy that runs around on the internet says he's Jack Spirico, and that's me. There could be other people on the internet saying they're Jack Spirico, but this identity, this this virtual identity, says I'm that Jack Spirico. Okay, that's good enough for playing online games or maybe you know liking my Facebook account, knowing it's the real Jack Spirico, or following my Twitter, know you can actually depend on that information. And the market's already pretty good at doing that itself. When when somebody's spoofing somebody else, it usually doesn't take long for that person to be found out. And generally what happens is the person that would be spoofed has enough notoriety that when they say, I'm over here, everybody knows that, you know, that is the real Twitter account or the real Facebook account or the real YouTube channel or something like that. But you could formalize that a little bit. And then at different levels, you might re be able to reveal more information, including up to the point of when you go see a doctor, here's my medical records up to this point. Now, that would require a two-way street that's not as, as free as you'd think it would be right now. In other words, your practitioner may not be providing all your medical records back to you, but you could set up a system that, that basically collected all that data or the individual put their own information into it. But you don't need that information unless I've decided you're privy to that information. And that information could be locked up in a way where it can be viewed, but maybe difficult to download. I don't know exactly how to do that, but I bet there's coders that do. I guess you could take a picture of it on a screen and then replicate it, but doing that in mass is not so easy. Those, that, that would be one example. And you can only look at it during the time period I allow you to look at it for the purpose I allowed you to look at it for. Like This, this is the type of identification. Now, there would be so much to work to do on this one product you're talking, probably a multi-year project to roll this out completely right. And there's more to it than that. Let's talk about how you would actually do it. First, you would create a secure, vetted environment. So, so that someone or something is reviewing your application for identity. And this would be highly sensitive stuff, like social security numbers, like addresses, uh, like proof of occupancy, all of these types of things that, that let a business know right now, this is Jack Spirico, this is you know Tom Smith, uh, and this is this Tom Smith, not that Tom Smith. Okay, um, And people would say, well, there's a huge security risk there. No, wait a minute. Thousands of corporations do this every day. There's plenty of places where you have to give this highly sensitive information to verify your identity. Try going out and getting a cell phone right now if you don't already have one without giving out incredible amounts of personal information. Now, in general, these companies do a pretty damn good job of checking the information and then protecting it. Sometimes there are data leaks. But none of them are operating in a blockchain environment with this today, which could make data leaks a lot less likely, not more likely. Because by decentralizing it, there's not one place to go. You see, the problem for a company like, let's say, let's not even talk about people here, let's talk about Merck Pharmaceuticals that wants to protect all that multi-billion dollar IPR. There's a data center sitting somewhere. And there's a, there's a choke point where they have all of their security mounted up to keep hackers out of there. But if the hacker gets in, they're in. But if the pieces of all that information were on a distributed ledger and each having its own key, if you got a piece, it would be fundamentally useless without a bunch of other pieces to go with it. And you certainly couldn't do something like get Bank of America's entire customer database. Or the credit card records of every person that shopped at Target in a 60-day period. 
which that, that one actually happened. You couldn't get it because it would be in this distributed architecture. So we can create, and you'd have to have vetted people or reliable coding to automate part of this, but I think a, a human review component to this would add greater credibility. And then you use the state's tools to verify identity in every meaningful way. To where if we created Libertas, and I gave you a Libertasian identity, and you were to present that to someone, whether they chose to accept it or not, any reasonable entity within its ability to do so would recognize the identity as equal to more valid than your Texas State driver's license. Because he, oh, what you can leave open source is this is our review process. This is how we verify an individual. You could even allow auditing by an independent third party of your process, which no state does. No state says, not only do we make sure that people we issue a driver's license to, except if they're illegal, illegal aliens, provide these things to prove their identity, birth certificate, SSI, etc., right, SSN, etc. Um, you can come in and audit it to make sure. Well, you can't let anybody audit it, but you could have trusted third parties audit it. So what I'm saying is you make an airtight, vetted digital identification, and then you put the individual in full control of their identity. And I think the way that you would do this is, you know, we talk about tokens and coins as though they're always monetary units. Well, Swarm City has basically two tokens that will circulate in Swarm City. So one is the, the, the SWAT token, or the SWT token, the Swarm token, that when I want to buy a ride from you, and I put hashtag need a ride up, and you say I'm available for a ride. I say, okay, come pick me up. Here's how much it's going to, you know, here's how much I'll pay. You say, okay. And basically what happens is it will say it's going to be $10 worth of Swarm City tokens. Both of us end up putting $10 into a bucket. And then at the transact, when the transaction takes place, the $10 goes from me to you, plus you get your 10 back. It's a proof of stake. In other words, both sides have skin in the game. So if you don't show up, you don't get your money back. And if, if I don't show up, you get paid anyway. And I don't know how they're going to iron all that out. But just understand that they, that's the monetary token. right? That's I sent you Bitcoin. I sent you Dash. I sent you Augur. Whatever. But the other thing in Swarm City that's also a token is a trust token. So now you pick me up. You give me a ride. We've created a transaction. You get a trust token. It goes to your trust score. In the world of giving rides. Not in the world of painting fences. Because those two things are not identical. But you get a, swarm, a, a, a trust token for this world, this, this hashtag world. So that token is not money. It is a uncounterfeitable, there can only ever be one of them, okay, trust token that now goes and resides with your identity. So why can't you create an identity token? The token itself is the identity. And it contains these layers of your identity. How much information is necessary for me to provide to you in any given transaction? And the answer is, in most situations, unless I want you to have it, none. Because all of those layers have to be there for that token to exist and say, I am this Jack Spearco. Now, if I have medical records on there and you're my doctor, I may want to push that information to you. And we can make it to where I can push it to you, 
but you can't pull it. We could also make it to where I can push it to you for a time, and then it basically self-destructs. There's a lot of different ways that that can happen. You don't need it all the time. But when you say, well, I need your social security number now. Well, no, you don't. This is my token. I'm the only one that could control this token. And identity theft in, in places that this token is used becomes unheard of because you can't control my token and you can't replicate it. See, right now I can replicate your identity. If I have your social security number, I have one of your bank account numbers, I have your address, and I have your driver's license, I can be you in a lot of places before you catch me. And you won't even catch me, you'll catch the process, and I'll go do it to somebody else. But you can't counterfeit a Bitcoin. If you could, people would be doing it right now, now wouldn't they? And it would destroy the value of the currency. So it was designed that each coin that's mined is unique and individualized and recorded in the ledger. And if you try to, to, to make a second one, it won't work. Well, you could do that with identity. You do that with identity. Now you have an identity token. And maybe that's not the right word for it, but you have this digital identity coin, this digital identity token that is you. And the only, the only person that can modify it at that point by adding to it, not taking from it, is you. Now, what about when somebody dies? Okay, we'll figure that out. I, I don't know right now. There had to be some power of attorney or something that can terminate the token, uh, which is dangerous because then if the state had that power, then they could terminate your existence and your trust and all that stuff. So there had to be some sort of validation that you actually were deceased. state has fail-safes for this right now, and sometimes they fail. So as long as you can do is good or better, you're good enough. That's what we have to start realizing. Perfect cannot become the enemy of the good. We just have to be better than they are. That's all. And then here's the magic. Yes, you have to use these systems right now. But when John and Tammy have John Jr., and John Jr. is born a native citizen of Libertas because John and Tammy were both citizens, and they say, this is our child. Well, that identity can be established at birth, like a birth certificate in this virtual nation, And all of the things that need to go along with that identity can be built up for that child over time. And we know that John and Tammy had the baby because they said so. And eventually you could develop a system, I'm not sure exactly how to skin it yet, where native-born virtual citizens could do 100% of their digital identity building inside the virtual nation with no longer relying on the state systems. And then you basically end up with like a Department of Immigration You'd have native-born citizens and people that wanted to immigrate virtually to your virtual nation. Now, this may all sound pie in the sky, and you might be thinking, what's the point? Well, the point is huge. Because what I realized listening to this discussion on the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, it is identity that is the state's main tool against its citizenry. If you think about it, everything in your life revolves around what the state knows about you, and what the state is willing to say about you. If you want to leave, you need a passport. If you want a job, you need a social security number. Once you have a social security number, you have a job, you're going to pay taxes. That's what we're going to track. If we decide we don't like what you're doing, we can say things about your identity and thereby control you. 
It's both the negative and the positive of that that gives the state so much power. It really is. It is that identity. And it is that identity that allows others to see value in who you are. The reason the bank will give you a loan is because they know that if you're John Samuel Spirico Jr., which is my slave name, my real name, with this social security number that says you have these bank accounts that has these tax returns with a letter from your account that says you're self-employed and you want to borrow money to buy a $200,000 house, that's why we'll give you the money. Because we trust those things. It's not that we trust you. We, we want to verify your income, but we trust the identity and we trust our ability to enforce the contract with you. John, if you do not pay for your house, we will take it away, and there are means by which to do so that the people that vouched for your existence in the first place have given us. Now, that's negative and positive, because I want to buy the house. Trust me, the bank wants to give me the money. The banks are not in the business of saying no to loans. They only say no when they have to or because something's wrong or they don't believe that they're going to get repayment. And they want to get enough repayment that the few repayments they don't get that they foreclose on wash out any losses and they're good to go. So the bank wants to find willing borrowers. They want certain assurances. Well, the state wields incredible power within that voluntary transaction because they hold the keys. Well, what if you held the keys? What if you held your own key? What if once the key was established... Now, here's the thing about this virtual identity... Forever, everything that you do as a Libertasian or a Bit Nation citizen or whatever it is called attaches to your identity. So, remember I talked about push technology? So, when you say, well, um, I would like to um, be a coder for you and I would like to code your next project, and here's my virtual resume. And they say, well, can you give us references? Well, I don't need to give you references. Here's all the proof of work in this block of all the projects I've done and who I've done them for. And here's, you know, that we were paid and there's the lack of arbitration and everything. Well, now I trust you to be my coder. Now, if I see in your, and I can ask for that, and you can say, well, I'm not giving it to you. Well, I'm not giving you the job then. If you're up front with me and say, this would be my first job, I might give you a small job. So it's not that critical as a coder just to test you. But if I, if, you, if I do see it, and I see like 20 projects that were started and never finished, and the smart contracts were never you know, finalized and executed, and you didn't get paid, I know right away I have a problem. Because it's not that you have a collections problem, because the smart contract would have paid you upon delivery. That's how smart contracts work. So now... There's yet another value to your identity, this accumulation. When you were in high school and grade school, they used to scare you with this. It was called your permanent record. That doesn't exist. If you haven't figured it out yet, okay, if you haven't figured it out yet, when your teacher told you it was going to go on your permanent record, it was a lie. Somebody I had on the show one time said they were going to make a, 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 a pictogram. I think they actually did it. It was Sasquatch riding a unicorn, and he had a satchel, and a satchel said your permanent record on it. Because the Sasquatch and the Unicorn go straight up with your permanent record. But it would be a real permanent record. Again, one you have control over. No one can see it unless you allow it, but you can't, you can't fake it. You can't fudge it. 
Do you see how valuable this would be? What would it mean to a company that was hiring people, whether it was for contract or direct access, let's say not even inside Libertas, but they had a, a an embassy inside Libertas and said, well, we, we can't do business in Liberty Coin. We are doing business in, I don't know, Canada. And we have to apply, you know, we have, but we want to be able to vet prospective employees. And you say, well, you know what, if you want to hire our people, the nice thing is we don't tax them for working outside our nation. So we don't do that. You guys in their status do that. Uh, yeah, you can, you can verify that this guy can do this job because he's done it within Libertas. How is this different from somebody that, say, worked in the United States for 20 years and has an opportunity to go work in France? And France looks at what they've done in the United States and says, yeah, you're qualified to do that. Come on over. Get your passport. Come on over. Fill out this paperwork. Here's your work visa, whatever. It's the same thing, just in reverse. But what if it was absolutely immutable and concrete that these are the things that you've done? These are the people you've had dealings with. And again, those layers were available in a format where they could be provided by the person that controlled it, but only by the person that controlled it. The implications are massive. The value is through the roof. And then you can start exerting hard force, so, I'm sorry, soft force, and economic force, and social capital as a nation. Because when you say we are a million strong, well, what do you mean you're, we're a million strong with better identification than any other citizen in the world? We absolutely know these people who are who they say they are, and they are committed to what we're doing, which is peaceful, voluntary interaction of human beings on the planet. I'll throw in a little side here. I almost think, before I go on with some of the things I think that you should be done inside this virtual nation, that it should be a religion. It should be a religion. And it would be a religion that does not require you to disavow any other religion. You can be a Christian and a libertist, right, or whatever. You can be an atheist and be a libertist or whatever, but it's a faith. It's a faith and the core belief of the faith is that the use of violence and force on others, other than in self-defense, is wrong. That's the core commandment. That's probably the only commandment. And just enough paperwork to make it legitimate. Because states recognize faiths and give exceptions to faiths. So I don't want to chase that that rabbit down too deep a hole today, but just saying, just saying, right? That when someone when you're trying to def, when you when when the nation itself was defending itself against the statist systems that say you have to do these things, and we say, well, we're doing them all in our world, and we're all of this religious belief, and that that is in violation of my core religious belief. Has power. Look at the shit Scientology gets away with. I'll just put it to you that way. My God. All right, so where do we go with a virtual nation if we have that ironclad ID? I think one of the big things we do is market force, group buys. And those could be inside virtual nation or outside the virtual nation. So, oh, you want to do, you want to do business with us? And, uh, okay, well, we have um, 10,000 people that will buy your product. Uh, yeah. Uh, we'd prefer to do business inside the virtual nation, but, you know, we understand that you can't. Well, in the state of, uh, of Texas, we have a 1,000 people that can buy your health insurance, Aetna. 10,000. Yep. No problem. 
Got them all ready to go. Everyone says they want it. Everyone's ready to pay, but they all want the same price and abide as a block. Now, right now, there's proposals to make that legal uh, in the United States, but there's actually not, as far as I know, anything that makes it illegal. That that insurance company could recognize any group as a group insurance block. They're just not required to. Well, it's because you don't have enough people. You get enough people, you start getting attention. And that's just one example. But what's that worth? What is having that coordinated swarm worth? You have complete individual sovereignty and autonomy, yet they can focus together whenever they want at will. And you give them tools and mechanisms to do this. But market force alone would be huge. And you don't even have to get that big before you start to be a true market force. If you think about general consumer industries, if you have a million people, which isn't as difficult, I think, as it sounds. A million people is a huge market. It's a huge market, especially among commonly purchased items. What kind of deals could be negotiated simply with websites, especially websites that would be willing to take your currency? Okay. Well, if I buy something and it gets shipped to me, how does that apply? I don't know. We figure that out as we go. And in some instances, you have to deal with the local laws and the local nation laws and status laws on some of those things, and maybe some of them you don't, but you still have the market force. Even if you completely comply, you still have the market force. And as, as you exert the market force, it becomes more and more advantageous to be part of the force, the market force. So therefore, your, 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 your membership swells, and as your membership swells, you can do more and more to exert defensive force against the statist organizations that wanted to bring you down. Educational certification. I think this is a layup. So now, I've, see, once I've got this identity thing going on, what I can say is all of these students that graduated this course in coding were taught by, you know, this incredibly gifted coder with all of this reputation, and he certified them all. Well, not only do you have the little piece of paper or the digital certification or whatever, you have incontrovertible proof that you took that course and that was your instructor and this was your grade and he certified you. At a much higher level than, you know, college diplomas that people fake. Like the recent school principal who ended up fired because the journalism team for the school newspaper uh, was went poking around her credentials with no real intent to, to prove anything. They just poked around because they were doing they were gonna do like this special report on their principal. Well it turned out that all her credentials were faked and they found them. So if that can happen with a principal of a public school, how much diploma certification fraud is going on out there? Well, you'd be able to say that in any educational certification that we have, we have incontrovertible proof. This person is the person that took this course, and they did this work, and they have this ability. They've been tested and proven to have this ability. By the way, since they've acquired this certification... They've had this many clients in this niche that are satisfied with their work and the transactions went through. Do you see how powerful that is? I mean, compare that to a LinkedIn profile. Just just really let it sink in. So educational certification. I think conflict resolution. I think that you know smart contracts do a lot for that right now, but people really don't completely understand smart contracts, and there's a lot of technical aspects to that. But if people could simply kind of roll up a contract really easily between them to do certain things and have certain things delivered. And if there was a, a disagreement at the end of the contract, like 
the two sides won't both push the yes, we're done button. Having arbitration within Libertas actually gives us even greater credibility with the nation states of the world. Because, well, you know, you need us for No, we, we, we don't. We successfully resolve conflict far better than you do. No one ends up in prison. No one ends up sued for millions of dollars. Because the system puts checks in place that never let the liability grow that high before the conflict resolution takes over. So we'd actually code conflict. The majority of conflict resolution wouldn't even re require an arbitrator. That would be the exception. And the arbitrators would be rated by the system and by their actions and gain trust. So that when you and I decided to do business, we already could pre-select two, two or three agreeable arbitrators. And if something goes wrong, we'll go to one of them. But the system would arbitrate for us before we ever got there. Well, now, if you're a big company and you're doing business with a lot of small contracts, do you know how much safeguard this gives you from something like class action? Well, you know, you can still have class action, not if the business is all done within the city of Libertas and they have plausible deniability. And yes, that would be tested in court, but at some point, you want it tested in court. You want it tested in court. Corporate structures, online corporations, that's something BitNation says they're doing. I don't see how to do it yet, but that's what they're saying. They're, so that the entire the, the formation of the corporation was within the virtual nation. I mean, you're getting to a deep level of telling the state to piss off now. We don't exist in your world. Yes, I, the individual, exist in your world, but the corporation that does business in Libertas, that I happen to be a partner, shareholder, etc., in, doesn't even exist in your world. You have no filings for this corporation. It does not do business in U.S. dollars or Great British Pounds. It does not have an EIN number. It has a virtual identification token as the corporation issued by the, the nation that, that is, you know, building a reason for your non-existence and making you irrelevant. Absolutely. I don't even think you hide what you're doing. You're totally up front. We are trying to make you irrelevant. And I'll tell you why that's a good thing. What the states, the, the states of the world would see, and I'm talking about Florida, I'm talking about the United States, Canada, when you said that is, oh, these idiots, they don't know what they're doing. This is never going to work. And that's what a lot of you are thinking right now, too. Good. You need to be ignored to build up enough momentum to get to the point where when you are mocked, you're already past the point where opposition would have been useful. So that by the time opposition comes, you have so much momentum that eventually you just win through acceptance. And, and, then, and then your competitors start trying emulation. That's how this would have to work. Now, I'm not saying I have the full solution to this. I'm saying this is the pattern that eventually somebody will figure out how to do it. And I think it will be some buddies. I think it will be competing virtual nations that will move at different speeds and have different takes on this. And the ones that do the best in the marketplace will garner the most support of people that want to be affiliated and be part of them. All right? Um, I think a general marketplace. And I think this is where you have to be careful. I don't think at this point anybody out there should be replicating Silk Road. And I've heard various stories about Silk Road, and I tend to believe the ones that are more favorable toward Ross Albright. That are basically, no, there wasn't murder for hire going on. That, that stuff wasn't allowed. But yes, people were buying drugs. I think allowing the 
transportation of illegal substances um, through a virtual market at this point, whether I think they should be illegal or not, I, I totally think it would make sense to have Pot Bay, right? Pot Bay is the eBay for potheads. And all the different types of pot you can get with seller reputations, yo, this stuff was really good, whatever. It's all there, and it works just like eBay for pot. And you, I think that's a fine idea, but I think it, it doesn't work in the legislative world right now. You'd have to stay clean with any goods being transported. I know that sounds anti-libertarian and anti-voluntarist, but it's, it's what's called common sense pragmatism. But I think a general marketplace that allowed the sale and transactions of goods and services set up kind of like a bizarre model. And that exists, but inside the virtual nation. You're not allowed in unless you're a citizen. And being a citizen is not entering stuff into a form, filling it out, and hitting confirm on an, on an email. It is paying for a full-on um, vetted identification. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because I'm not saying you would root out all espionage and things like that, but um, you would be able to at least cursorily determine people that were working for the man, right? Oh, gee, I see you are a agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I see you're an IRS agent. Well, how would you know that? Well, they have to actually give you their real information because it actually has to be vetted by the system. Maybe we don't let those people in. You know, I, I don't know. That's up to the people that found any individual virtual nation. But a general marketplace that encourages the buying and selling of goods and services and makes it easy for people to do. Um, I think entertainment. I think it's something that would be great to do. That entertainment is an export product. Got me? Entertainment would be an export product. And that could come in the form of edutainment as well. But also, entertainment is the greatest propaganda machine known to man. And we've gotten to a place where we believe propaganda is a bad word, primarily because most propaganda is nefarious propaganda. But propaganda is simply formatting your story in a way that's easily digestible and spreads your ideas. And rolling it into things like entertainment and education. Well, I think one of the places that The liberty movement has fallen flat is education. I'm sorry, entertainment. That is, is something that people would look at and want to see or be part of or read or watch or listen to, whether they were specifically already on board the concept of libertarianism, voluntarism, etc. already. Just a story with the thing built in. And there's more and more books and novels and stuff coming out like that. But what if Libertas was a place that, that you published your works video, audio, musical, whatever. And that if people wanted to buy it within Libertas, so be it. But if, you, you know, U.S. artists sell into Europe, there's a mechanism for that. What, what if you created a situation where major bands or filmmakers decided, hey, if we incorporate in Libertas, we can sell to these Libertasians... But also we can sell in the export marketplace, but transact most of our business in Libertas with this greater immunity to the state. Now, I don't think Hollywood would jump on that real quick, but there are independents that would. 
And some of them wouldn't even be totally off the status bandwagon. See, here's the thing. You have to start building a situation. You have to start embracing this concept that I think everybody knows, but nobody really wants to admit the full ramifications of it. Money goes where it's treated well. The reason Donald Trump wants to drop the corporate tax rate to 15% is so that companies will do business in America. That's why. And, and here's an aside. I'm not defending Trump, but I want, I want to defend this one stupid statement by the press and by the, the left that you hear over and again. It's a tax cut for billionaires. No, it's not. It's a tax cut for corporations. If I have Jack Inc., and Jack Inc. takes in $100 million a year and $50 million of its profit, the corporation right now pays about 40% profit on that $50 million, or $20 million it pays a tax on. Okay, That's not my money. Well, you get dividends as a, as a primary shareholder. Yes, but the, the, it, the corporation is taxed before the distribution of the dividends. Well, you get a giant salary, and that's taxed as personal income. By the way, my dividends are taxed too. Do you understand this? This is a lie. When you own a company and it pays a corporate tax rate, it pays that corporate tax rate of the money left in the company. And if the money stays in the company instead of goes to pay taxes, what does the company do with it? It expands, it innovates, it hires new people, etc. Instead, these corporations are moving their money out of the country. Now, here's the thing. Do you think Apple pays United States taxes? Sure they do. But they have about $90 billion in China. They don't pay U.S. taxes on them. They pay Chinese taxes on them, which are the bastion of socialism. They're lower than our corporate tax rates. Why? Because Apple looked at it and structured things and said, we'll comply with U.S. tax law only where we have to. How many corporations, big ones, would it take to completely tip the balance of power of moving people, entertainment, or any industry into a virtual nation. Even if it was a segment of their money, a segment of their earnings that they could avoid taxation on and further invest. Because now I have that retained earnings in this virtual nation. Well, I can hire virtual nation citizens to do work in the virtual nation and, and just basically tell the government to piss off. Well, and they can go after you. But they're in China. They're following the law based on this paradigm. You use the paradigm against them. This is like 20 years of work, by the way. And, and it's going to morph. Let's look how much it's morphed since my first time I conceived of it. It's going to get better, though. All the power is on our side. And I, I think we should go into I think we should go into the insurance industry as virtual nations. Why not? You could actually build a real insurance product that really worked, that paid out to the Libertasian citizen that they could use to pay their bill in the real world with, based on reality. Because let me explain to you what I call the non-reality of health insurance right now. What people want for health insurance right now is they want to pay $100 a month or something like that, and they want insurance that pays out $20,000 a year in benefits. You can't do it. Like, you compare it to a car. So let's say I want a car. Well, I'm going to go out and get a car. And let's say I'm going, to, I'm going to lease the car, I'm not going to buy it, and I am not going to, um, I'm not going to, uh, to pay cash for it either. I'm not going to finance I'm just going to do a lease. And I can get a decent car for $300 a month. Okay? 
That's one expense in owning a vehicle. I'm going to put $200 a month in fuel into it. Now I'm up to $500. Okay? On top of that, with general service and tires and, and things like that, oil changes, all of the work that I need to have done to it is going to be about another $1,000 a year, right? But we're going to call it 100 bucks to make it a round number. So $600 that I'm putting into that vehicle. Additionally, if something happens to it that's minor, like I hit a tree and I need $200 worth of repair, my insurance doesn't cover that either. Okay? Just doesn't. If I want to wash it, my insurance doesn't cover it. So all in all, let's say I have $700 in expense to maintain my vehicle before I put insurance on it. And then I go out and I spend $150 a month for insurance, and I have $850 expense into that vehicle. What you're saying with health insurance is you want to pay $150 for your car insurance and you want your insurance company to pay for your lease, to pay for your gas, to pay for your oil changes, to pay for your fender benders, to pay for your accessories. You decide that you want to uh, put new floor, but you want that paid for too. Or at least you want to co-pay on it. When I go out and buy floor mats for $50, bucks, I only want to pay 20 That's how health insurance is right now. Well, health insurance should say, if you have catastrophic failure, then you're covered. But you pay the doctor the $50 bucks or $100 bucks for the office visit out of pocket. Because that's what a doctor's visit's worth. And you'd see the cost of health care crater if everybody did this. Because as soon as they didn't have the cash cow of the insurance companies to milk, pshuh, goodbye. When, when no one will pay the price, the price drops. That's how it works. The problem with health insurance right now is not insurance. It's the cost of care. It's, it's absolutely out of whack and utterly inflated. But there are a lot of people out there that say, you know what, I would like insurance so I don't go bankrupt. But I'll pay for my general medical expenses. You could make a product like that. They won't let you. Who's going to ask them for permission? Who's going to ask them for permission? You're talking about pooling your wealth into an assurance policy. There are already programs like this. Do you remember what I said about modularity? There's, there right now is a product, I know John Pugliano uses it, that's religious affiliated, that uses a loophole in the Obamacare program where people pay this money, And they pay it, and it fulfills their obligation to be insured under Obamacare so they don't pay the tax penalty. And if something very big happens, then the money is used to pay for it. But when you go to the doctor because you skinned your knee, you pay the bill. Just like when you go to the, 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 the gas station and say, I need a new air filter and an oil, uh, oil change, you pay the bill. So all you're doing is moving that entity. If you recognize it here, you have to recognize it here. You don't recognize it? Well, we don't really care. The only thing that would be a problem with that is, can you prove you've met your obligation and avoid paying the tax penalty? Well, I don't know if most of your income is in liberty dollars inside this system. Maybe you don't care anymore. I don't know. So your income is so small, the penalty's small. Or maybe you, you have this as, as something additional to your real-world insurance program, your nation-state insurance program. I don't know. What about, I mean... Other insurances, though, you know, there's there's a, a lot of problems for the small business person to get insurance. But the reality is, 
there's not a ton of liability there. The average person who's trying to run a small business, the, the price of their insurance is insane compared to the liability they really represent. So I think there's a place for that. And I think any product you can think of, especially non-material products, fit well in this model. I think the bigger thing, though, is I think this is our only real play at this time. I don't know where we go next without this type of thinking. And is it a virtual nation? Does it get called something else? Does it end up being a swarm of swarms that you can move in between multiple locations instead of even having one place? I don't know. But this is the type of thinking that actually can result in making large components of the state irrelevant. Because why do you need a state? My roads. Okay, hold on. I want to tell you something about your roads. Your roads are largely paid for with usage fees right now. So we're paying the state the usage fee, and they probably don't make the best use of it. But roads are mostly funded with motor fuels taxes, license fees, and other fees that transportation authorities, etc., pay. That's the primary funding for roads right now. They're not paid for with your property taxes. They're not paid for with your income tax. They're not paid for with sales tax. They're paid for with usage fees. That's the primary thing that funds this infrastructure as, as we speak. All right. Then, well, what about my, you know, what, what about some level of service from government for the interim? Okay, most states have sales tax. At least that's voluntary. And, and so you already see a blueprint where the state can survive on the critical functions that a virtual nation wouldn't be ready to take over for a very long time with more of in the line of usage fees rather than taxing property and taxing income, punishing success. That's the, that is the most uh, insidious part of, of taxes in the modern world is they punish success. So if you punish something, you get less of it, right? And the harsher you punish it, the less of it you get. Whereas if you subsidize something, you get more of it. So we've subsidized poverty, and we've subsidized debt. We've punished success. We have more poverty and more debt and less success than ever before in any measurable way that you would judge it for the average person. It's no mystery. So what you're talking about is creating a system that flips that on its head. It rewards success, absolutely rewards success, by not taxing it. And admits its limitations and says, we'll do what we can with what we have for now. That, that, is, that is the absolute way to look at this. And again, I don't know what our next play is other than something like this. And again, I, I, I am totally open. Like My purpose in putting out material like this is so it will go into the minds of thousands of people who will talk to thousands of other people about it, and someone will go, he's so close, but if we did this and this and this, then this could actually work. Now, I'll tell you what I'm not interested in. It'll never work. I'm a tax attorney, and I can tell you they're not going to allow this. The banking system's going to shut it down. I'm not interested in anything you have to say, because you're living in yesterday's paradigm, and you're looking for reasons it can't work instead of the methodologies to figure out how it can work. Because all of you that say that today, 10 years ago, if somebody would explain what Bitcoin was going to be to you, it'll never work, they won't let it happen, they'll shut it down, They'll hack it. Yeah, and if you would have bought Bitcoin, a couple thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin in 2012, 
you'd be a multimillionaire now. So I'm not interested in I'm not. Because you have a track record of failure with that mindset. And it is that mindset that the state relies on to maintain control of the sheep. And when I start hearing it'll never work, I don't even hear Eeyore the donkey from Winnie the Pooh. I hear freaking ba ba ba. That's what I hear. That's what I hear. I hear ba. Just you don't even think you're a sheep, but you're a sheep. Or no person has ever been in more more enslaved than he who falsely believes himself to be free. That's what you're be- you think you're part of a liberty movement and then bah we can't do that they'll never again I'm not asking anybody's permission I don't think I don't think most of the people doing great things in the world of cryptocurrency and these types of evolu- you know evolution in humanity are busy asking anybody for permission or asking anybody if it'll work they're saying I'm going to go code the damn thing I'm going to go try this and if it works it works and if it doesn't We'll learn something. This is the first time in humanity we can actually have a bloodless freaking insurrection. This is the first time in humanity that we can literally begin wresting control of society from the people in power without shooting anybody or hanging anybody or burning any buildings down. I'm not saying none of that shit's going to happen in the future, because it probably will, because it happens every day. I'm saying the real people leading this movement for the first time can seize power for the individual, for society, allow groups to work as collective groups or sovereign individuals and collaborate where they want to and go their separate ways when they don't without burning a building down, without dropping a bomb, without throwing a Molotov cocktail, without hanging you know, the members of parliament or whatever. It's the first time in history. And some of us still can't see the opportunity. I see the opportunity. And I'll be honest, I don't know if I'll ever really see it fully coalesced into a concrete path, a virtual concrete path in my lifetime. This might take a hundred years. But I'm telling you right now, this is the future of humanity. This is how techno-voluntarism will transform society sooner or later. And I don't think we should sit around contemplating our navels and thinking about how wonderful it will be when it happens. We should continue doing all the things we can in the virtual world and the real world to better ourselves and our family, our financial stake, our social capital, our material capital, our experiential capital, all of the forms of capital. We should be doing all of those things. But we should also be seeking that ultimate solution that transfers power to the individual because that is the only way to have a free humanity. That is the only way to have a world where we can truly live by the credo that good ideas do not require force at the point of gun to be accepted and used. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I know it was a little bit different of a take than we've done for quite a while. Um, but man, it was stuff that I really wanted to get out to you guys today. And again, I hope you enjoyed it. I believe the work that we're doing here is important. I really do. And, uh, I, I, you know, I need your support to continue doing it. So one of the ways you can do that is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. You just go to tspaz.com and from there you can click on over to Amazon and see the deals of the day. You can also click another link that says to, to see the current item of the day in our reviews, click here. 
And when you click that, you can see the most recent reviews that I've done. And you'll see today's review is of something I talked about in a recent show. It's called the Bradley Smoker. I love the Bradley Smoker. My Bradley Smoker had smoke coming out of its chimney at 7 a.m. today. Because we just bought a half a cow from the neighbor down the road. I mean, I could almost throw a rock to this guy's property. Probably five throws I'd get there. Okay, if it's a right-size rock. And um, he, he called me up uh, about a month ago and said, Hey, um, do you, you guys want a cow? We're, we're selling our, our cows. We just finished them off. And uh, I'm like, I, 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 let me call some people and see if I can split it. And I couldn't find anybody to split it with. All the people that I knew had, you know, it's like hunting season just ended and shit. And like, all the freezers are full. And I'm like, I just don't have room for a full cow. And uh, he said, I'll find someone. So he found somebody else to take half, and we split it. And so I got half a cow this week, and I crammed it into my three different freezers. And uh, it's amazing how much, like, I'm like, our, our, our bill for groceries is going to be insignificant uh, comparatively for the next six months. Easy. And, uh, but one of the things that came was a brisket. And you realize these cows are a little smaller than some of the big steers that, uh, that they're, they're taking to, to the supermarkets and all. Because uh, a brisket's like half the size of a typical brisket. I was like, man, that brisket looks good. My wife loves brisket. So yesterday, I brined a brisket. A lot of people don't brine brisket because you only have to. I just think it comes out so much better. And my basic brine is a quarter cup of salt and a quarter cup of sugar to a gallon. And then I do a big handful of, of garlic, uh, red chili, um, and uh, black peppercorns and bay leaves and a little bit of uh, apple cider vinegar, probably a couple ounces. And I pour all that into a bag, and I put my brisket in there, and that brined overnight. This morning I got up, I took it out, and let it dry till it got sticky. So I put it on some paper towel, dried all the excess moisture off, let it dry till it starts to form a glaze on it. I hit it with Chef Keith Snow's uh, Low and Slow Competition Barbecue. Actually, it's Texas beef and brisket. That's what I hit it with. Both sides, I put it in the smoker. I smoked it right up to 155 degrees internal temperature. I shut my Bradley smoker off. I wrapped it up in thick aluminum foil. Put it in one of the big aluminum roaster pans, the throwaway one, so I don't have to worry about all the stuff that leaks out. And stuck that sucker in the oven, and it's at 250 degrees. And I don't care what, what Keith Snow says about how long it takes to smoke a brisket and have it ready. That thing will be falling apart by dinner time tonight. It will be fantastic. But it all came back to the Bradley smoker. And because I had the Bradley smoker, I plugged it in. I put my little biscuits in it. I figured out how long I wanted to smoke it for roughly. I checked it with a thermometer when it hit the temperature I wanted. Into the house it went. It required very little work. I love my side box smoker. I love my smokinator. But smoking meat on a Tuesday with, with a full work day ahead of me could have never happened without the Bradley. This thing is awesome. It does so many things. They actually have an adapter for it that lets you cold smoke. And there's some tricks and tips on that. This thing's cool. And I'll tell you what. Next month is what day? Dad's Day, man. It's Father's Day. Ladies, consider if you got a great dad for your kids or kids that are grown kids, you got a dad that likes to do briskets and pork shoulders and stuff, check this thing out. Because it's not that expensive for what it does. And I can't think of a dad on the planet that wouldn't love it. I have one, and if somebody gave me one, I'd have two. I wouldn't get I'd be like, great, now when I'm smoking for workshops, I, I can't just fit you know four pork shoulders in there. I can fit eight. Um Lots of cool stuff this thing does. Let me tell you, like the other thing is I don't like one-trick ponies. So when I do big cookouts, not just workshops, we have family over and stuff like that, and I do like a bunch of brats. What I do is I run my extension cord out to the Bradley smoker and turn it on, and I set it to like 110 degrees, and I make up all my food, and I wrap it in foil, and I stick it in there. 
And then people, when you they want another brat or another burger or whatever, you just open it up, slide the tray out, and take your, your nice warm but not too warm, you know, held temperature uh, brat or, or what have you. And that makes when there's, you know, 20 people here and you, you're trying to feed everybody off a grill like It's just a mess. So it, it serves that kind of holding the temperature thing as well. But let me tell you guys, I think that when it comes to smoking food, There's a lot of misinformation out there, and it's great to use a big pit or a big sidebox smoker and do you know, a 14-hour smoker or whatever. But in reality, as I've said before, that meat is only going to take on the flavor and character of smoke. You know, Forget the outside of it. Into the meat, up to about 150, 160 degrees. And electric smokers shorten the time necessary to get that done, and then your oven takes over. And it's set it and forget it, and nothing goes wrong. Check out the Bradley Smoker and improve your life today, man. I, I really love this thing. I use it more than all of my other smoking technologies. If you try it, you'll see why. Check out the reviews, man. You'll see this is a very well thought of, out for a long time piece of equipment. With that, it brings up the uh, song of the day today. And the song of the day today is by Creed, and it's called The Song You Sing. And... Um, Here's what John Adams says about it. He's been selecting these songs for us. Every once in a while, we need to have that moment of self-reflection and ask ourselves if we're doing all we can to make the world a better place. Whatever your song is, don't let the world get you down. Keep singing. And I'll let the words in this song speak for themselves because that's what it's really about. The song you sing in, in this, this metaphor here isn't literally a song. It's your life. It's what you stand for. It's when people look at you, they say, this is this person's work. This is what this person is doing. This is what this person is all about. This person's a teacher. This person's an entrepreneur. This person's a philanthropist. This person is teaching children to guard, whatever it is. This person matters to me because. And I matter to myself because this is what I'm doing. I don't know how this has worked out, but man, John has blown it up with matching these songs to the themes of the shows when neither of us knew what those shows were going to be when he selected the songs. And I don't even know what the song's going to be till the morning that I put the show notes together. I don't look ahead because I think it's kind of cool just to see it pop up there and go, oh, that's what today's is going to be. Um, man, this is what virtual nations are about. Standing for something that will last longer than us. See, I see us, as we look at this world of virtual nations, virtual swarms, cloud cities, cloud nations, whatever you want to call it, as being like the pioneers that settled this new world and founded a government that, for all its flaws, was better than anything else at the time when it came down to the individual's benefit. Again, Let the flaws go for a minute and think about it compared to everything. Half of the, the world was still under serfdom when the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, were penned. It was a radical, anarcho ideal that the state existed to serve the individual rather than the individual existing to serve the state. That's the principle that the United States of America was founded on. So what's the next logical leap? That individuals should serve each other in the absence of third-party states. That we don't need you, at least for many of the things you think we need you for. That's the song I'm singing. At the heart of everything I teach, that's the song that I'm singing. 
That's what I want people to learn. That goes down to teaching you to grow your own food or how to survive or how to be prepared or how to defend yourself or how to structure a business so that somebody can't come take it away from you. All of these things are about that concept. The belief that what you do and what you earn should be yours to further the song that you're singing. That's what it should be about. And that might sound like a utopian world. Let me tell you something. It would not be a utopia. It would be better than what we have. And it's a long way to go to get there. But I think every single shred that we can pull, every thread that we can pull out of the tapestry that is the state and claim as our own and render them irrelevant with, every single thread is worth pulling on. That's my song. What's yours? And whatever it is, by God, keep singing. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live that better life. Woke up and had a face-to-face Guess my reflection had a lot to say My worries steal my days. It just brings me down. There's no song you sing, and it loves me.